You are listening to the Hashtag Lita Podcast, hosted by author, speaker, and coach Jeff Connor. He invites you each week as he has conversations to discover how others are using love to change the world. Listen in and find what inspires love within you so you can go out and share it with the world. Remember, love is the answer. I have a dream today. Hello and welcome to the Hashtag Lita Podcast. My name is Jeff Connor and I will be your host this week. Uh, Just one item of note that I want to uh, throw out there right now in case you're wondering. I have decided to move this to uh, bi-weekly for now and it may even go to a monthly podcast um, just as some of my other things are kind of taking off and getting some traction, especially my work as a development officer with the homeless shelter, uh, Stepping Stone Emergency Housing in Anoka. I find that my available time to do this podcast is going down a little bit, but please don't worry. I love doing this. I've got uh, several episodes that are ready to go. It's more just a matter of timing, and frankly, this time of year is uh, a lot about me being in the outdoors, so I don't want to be spending as much time as I was over the summer months, I guess, putting this together each week. So we're going to go bi-weekly, and we'll keep doing that as long as it works. If it stops working, we'll go to monthly, but uh, I am committed to keeping on the work around the idea of love is the answer. So this week, I have an awesome guest, Nicole Billingsley. Nicole and I met I met her at a, a networking event. You'll hear a little bit about that as we start our discussion, um, but she's got an amazing story. Just over eight years ago, Nicole was actually a sex-trafficked worker and drug addict who had lost all the parental rights to her children. If you fast forward to today, she is now five weeks away as of right now, I believe, maybe even four weeks. Uh, We recorded this episode on October 21st. At that time, she was uh, six weeks away from getting her doctorate degree. She also owns and operates two recovery centers called Nivon Wellness Center in the Twin Cities. Nicole is living proof that where there is life, there is hope. And remember that statement, where there is life, where there is hope. We're going to talk about that later on in the episode. That's actually kind of, I think, their tagline at Nivon. Please join me in listening to this amazing story of Nicole's journey. Listen as she describes getting recruited into the sex trade and how her experiences as an owner of an escort service in Las Vegas, you know, changed her and, you know, some of the experiences, the traumatic events that she shares and talks about as she went on that journey are truly amazing. You're going to hear how that lifestyle in the sex trade led to her severe drug addiction, her time in jail, and then, like I said, all those harrowing experiences that went along with her lifestyle. Then you're going to hear how she and her husband, Von Shane, started to turn it all around. It's been a little bit of a journey, but uh, it's an amazing story of recovery and redemption that should give us all hope. You'll hear how the trauma and self-worth of each person are two of the greatest obstacles to recovery and living a thriving life. Nicole is trained in the MDR. We talk about that eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's a, a modality used to treat trauma. Um, and it's evidence-based therapeutic intervention to help clients recover from the effects of trauma and other issues. She's very passionate about helping clients heal from the effects of trauma as well as mental health and substance use disorders. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. So without any further delay, let's go ahead and dive into this just really fun and fascinating conversation. Enjoy. 
All right. Today I'm with Nicole Billingsley. Nicole, welcome to the Hashtag Lita podcast. Thank you. I have been, since the very first episode I did, and listeners may remember that. If you don't, you can go back and check it out. Uh, your husband, Von Shane, Von Shane Billingsley, was my very first guest on the Hashtag Lita podcast. Um, and he and I had a great conversation about race and racism and race in America in light of everything that's been going on in our country for centuries now, but really started coming to a head at the end of summer. And he he posted some things, got me on with him, and we had a great conversation. And I, I highly recommend anyone who's interested to go back and listen to that. But I met Von Shane because I met you. Um, and I met you, Nicole, at a networking event where you were speaking. And typically, I will ask my guests a million-dollar question, what's love got to do with it? And I'm not going to ask you that directly, because I think when people hear your story, they're going to very quickly understand what love's got to do with it. Um, and so with that, you know, Nicole, if you wouldn't mind just kind of introducing yourself and uh, and talking about your, your journey and what has gotten you to where you are today. Ah, uh, for sure, for sure. So um, I, so my name is Nicole Billingsley. I am the owner and director of a um, Treat, a couple treatment centers here in Minnesota called Navon Wellness Center. Um, Navon is a combination of my name, Nicole, and my husband, Von Shane, so Navon. Um, I have a master's in social work. I'm a licensed independent clinical social worker. I'm a licensed alcohol and drug counselor, and I'm also a certified clinical trauma professional. And in about six weeks, I'll have my doctor of behavioral health. Um, so my last eight years I have spent, um, getting my education and, um, opening this treatment center to help people, um, with addiction and mental health issues. So, um, I am very passionate about, um, people in recovery, um, substance use disorder, um, trauma and mental health and the intersection of, of all of that, that shows up in human beings. Um, so what brought me to the field is that I'm a person in long-term recovery. And what that means for me is I haven't had, uh, any mind, mood or mind altering substances in my life for uh, a little over eight years. I'll have nine years in January. And, um, I started recovery in 2012, which is the same year that I also started working on my education. Um, so I grew up in a family where addiction was prevalent. Um, I was removed from my mother as a child because of her addiction issues. And raised by my father, who was a single father, um, and uh, you know, saw a lot of traumatic things throughout my childhood. Uh, there was domestic violence in the house. Um, there was I want to say child abuse. The woman my dad was married to growing up um, would get abusive, uh, but my dad was there to protect me. There was some verbal abuse from her. Um, <clears throat> and then I was a victim of sexual abuse by a non-family member um, as an early teen. So with those experiences, um, like most people with addiction that have a trauma history, um, I started looking outside myself to be okay. 
And um, for me, that means that I started using drugs and alcohol at a very early age, was hanging around people in places that I shouldn't have been as an early teen and was trafficked into um, the sex industry at the age of 13, 14 years old. <clears throat> and that was all right here in Minnesota. And um, that became my life for a really long time. So the people that um, trafficked me, you know, there's a lot of grooming, there's a lot of, you know, showing you fancy things and you know, running away from home, they would find me and try to put me into a program, then I'd run away again. Um, so by the time I was like 16, I was pretty much on my own. Um, there wasn't much that family members could do to try to contain me. Um, you know, I, I got sent from, from Minnesota to Iowa to try to, I don't know, change my environment to see if I would calm down. Um, but by that time, I was so caught up in the lifestyle and just wanting to do what I wanted to do that going to school and doing normal adolescent things was just so far out of my mind um, because I was living this fast life by then. Um, what people don't understand, uh, working in adult nightclubs, that kind of thing, is that, you know, there there's a sense of you know, it's, it's like an underground world. And once you become part of that, it, it becomes harder and harder to get out. Um, there's a certain feel and demographic of, of, of getting that money and having those things and being part of that group. Um, that it can almost have some empowering qualities to it um, for somebody whose power was taken away from them as a sexual abuse victim. So, um, you know, people that say, you know, why did you just leave? Why did you do it so long? It's, it's like, <clears throat> I remember even having a conversation with somebody like, well, you actually go to work and work 40 hours a week to make that like I can make that kind of money in two hours. And that's a, a, the mindset that a lot of people who you know, are doing illegal activities for that fast money is it, it, it becomes, you know, almost like, well, you know, I, I may have to do these things, but look at what I get for it. And so that was a lot of justification for myself of staying in that lifestyle for so long, you know, in that lifestyle, you know, you get into it because of being traumatized, like you're able to shut off a part of yourself and engage in activities you probably wouldn't have if you didn't learn that skill from being an abuse victim. Um, but also it's, you know, becomes just a job. So this is just what I do. This is just a job. And um, in living that lifestyle and doing that job, you also get traumatized along the way. So, um, you know, furthering my career in that lifestyle, I moved to Las Vegas when I was 18 um, and, you know, start, started an escort service and, you know, what they call really high-end escort stuff. So, um, you know, going in the, the, the hotels and, and the, the, the casinos and things like that. And, you know, people can glamorize it all they want to, but you also get traumatized in doing that. So like I've been kidnapped before, I've had to jump out of cars going on the freeway because I didn't know what was going to happen when we got where we were going. 
um, I, um, you know, worked as a sex worker through my pregnancies because that was the only way I knew how to support myself. And so putting myself in situations to where, you know, somebody assaulted me when I was, you know, seven months pregnant with one of my children. So um, it's definitely, you know, things that, that are normal for somebody in that profession um, that people also don't realize when they're glamorizing that work. Um, I had people that I knew from that work that um, were killed. You know, there was a motel that we all used to use, you know, you could pay for by the hour. And one of the girls that I used to hang out with got murdered in that motel and the guy chopped her body up and put her in the air conditioner. So, I mean, things happen in that life that, um, is impossible to normalize. And, you know, that was my first addiction was that fast money, that lifestyle. Um, I alienated myself from my family. Um, I'm pretty sure they knew what I was doing, but, you know, I would lie and say I was a cocktail waitress and things like that. So I couldn't expose parts of my life to my family. Um, I should back up a little bit. When I was 16, I had my first child. Um, I was working in an adult nightclub at that time. Um, so I had her and um, she was a blessing and also, you know, a single mom and living that lifestyle that I lived. I was gone all night and I'd come home in the mornings and, and be a mom and um, brought her with me to Vegas. And then when I got to Vegas, I'd been there about a year and that's when I started getting um, heavy into drugs. I had always, you know, dibbled and dabbled. And I've always had the kind of personality where if I do something, I do it like 150%. Um, more is always better. And um, so when I got to Vegas, and, and that's just also part of that lifestyle is drugs and alcohol and, and all those things. So um, I got really heavy into meth. Uh, my first year in Vegas, I probably slept two days. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> I quickly went downhill and what was this, you know, fast money, fast paced, you know, had nice things, nice cars, nice house, got taken over by the drug addiction. And then I started, you know, my money and time and energy started going there. And <clears throat> I started not being as good of a parent as I should have. Um, and I, uh, you know, really saw a different side of myself and of society and everything like that. Once I got into um, to using drugs, and I had two more children. I had two sons um, while living in Vegas, and um, got married a couple times, and um, got into probably the the worst relationship I've had in my life with my youngest son's dad um, to the point where I thought a couple times that he was going to kill me um, once while pregnant with my son. And, um, you know, I started doing cocaine. My cocaine use got really, really bad. And <clears throat> coupled with the, um, you know, living in really bad housing, having 
you know, two kids of my own and his kids there and my, me trying to hide my drug use and the domestic violence, um, I really went downhill. Um, I should mention that, you know, no matter how bad my drug use got, I didn't use drugs or alcohol at all when I was pregnant with any of my children. Um, I think that was uh, my justification for, for wanting to have my last child is because things got really bad and I knew if I got pregnant, I wouldn't use. And so in the course of my pregnancy with my youngest son and um, being in that domestic violence situation, I um, left him, I put him in prison uh, from the charges and I left Vegas. So this must have been, I would say probably 2005 or 2006. Um, and I, when I left, I had very little, um, just my, uh, my belongings. I didn't have a car. And uh, so I packed up my three kids and I moved to Des Moines and slept on my, the floor of my mom's one bedroom apartment. <coughs> Excuse me. And so with me and my kids there, um, I, um, mind you, if you backtrack, um, I didn't go to high school. I dropped out of school. Um, I got my GED when I was pregnant with my daughter, but, um, <clears throat> so here I am in Des Moines sleeping on my mom's floor with my three kids and, um, no job skills. Uh, you know, I mean, you have to have some skills to, to survive in that lifestyle. You know, it's just, an entrepreneurial mindset <laughs> in yeah. a way. Um, you also have to, um, you know, a lot of survival skills, things like that, people skills, you know, marketing, those kind of things. Um, people don't realize that too. When I, when I have clients that are like, I don't know who, how to do anything but sell drugs. I'm like, do you know how much talent you have to do, have to have to sell drugs? Like there, there's a lot that goes into that, that people don't even realize. But, um, so outside of those skill sets, I didn't have any marketable, you know, resume things to put on a resume to go get a job. So I was kind of stuck and, um, no education, anything like that. So I started looking at things that I could do. Um, and I think for a short period of time, I started working in long-term care with the elderly and, um, that was really rewarding. And, and because I was new there in Des Moines with my mom, I didn't know anybody. I was, you know, pretty determined that I was going to try to stop using. And um, I was like, well, let me go to school. And so I enrolled in school and I started taking classes to be a medical assistant. And I realized very quickly, like within my first semester that I was really, really smart, like academically, I was getting really good grades and I picked up on stuff. Um, really easily and had really good writing skills. And so um, that was really insightful for me because I, you know, was like, hey, you know, I could got to a point where it's like, I can, I can do this. Like school is something that I can do. I wasn't sure if I could because I had, I think I went to like three months of ninth grade. Um, and other than that, I didn't have, you know, any schooling after that. So um, I started working to be a medical assistant and, you know, I got, I finally got a house. I got into a program for people fleeing domestic violence and 
um, things were going okay. I was, you know, going to school during the day. I had an evening job. My mom was helping me with my kids. Um, my mom had, had rheumatoid arthritis really bad. She passed away a couple years ago, but she had rheumatoid arthritis and she, um, you know, misused her pain medication. So, and she was on a really high dose of, of prednisone. My mom was an amazing woman, um, really showed me what unconditional love meant, but she had her own demons that she was fighting. So she, she was there for me the best way that she could as much as her mind and her body would allow her to. Um, but that relationship was always strained because I think there was always a part of me that felt cheated because I um, didn't have all of her growing up because of her addiction issues and because of getting removed from her when I was a child. Um, an important thing that I missed was that part of the custody issue with my mom had a lot to do with my dad's mom. So my, my paternal grandmother um, really fought to get me away from my mother and uh, paid for the attorneys for my father and all that stuff. And she always badmouthed my mom and talked about her really badly. Um, so that was, will be an important part of, of what I'm going to say here shortly. Um, so, um, so that was kind of my beginning of, of uh, my life in Des Moines. I had a little glimmer of hope of, you know, maybe I could put a life together that didn't include, you know, sex work and, and that kind of thing. So that was going good for about six months. Then I started making some friends. My alcohol use did increase in this time. Um, you know, I started kind of dabbling with some pills and things like that, but nothing that was unmanageable. Um, and I met a person, I'm not going to call her a friend because, um, she was not a friend, but a person that introduced me to crack. And so we were hanging out one day and she was like, you want to try crack? And I was like, sure. I had tried it like once before back in the late nineties. And I didn't like it. I was like, well, that was fast. Now I just want some more. And so, um, she, we ordered, it was, I remember this, like it was yesterday. We ordered pizza and we ordered crack and the crack got there faster than the pizza. So needless to say, we didn't eat the pizza. Um, but that was the beginning of the, a fast and hard decline for me. So once I tried it, I think, you know, within a few days I was addicted and started using daily and dropped out of school and quit my job and started, you know, doing sex work again, got involved with this guy who um, had some pretty severe mental illness of schizophrenia and bipolar. And um, that was just uh, the start of, uh, the worst times of my life. And, um, I started leaving my kids with, you know, people that I didn't know very well. Thankfully nothing bad happened to them, but, you know, leaving for a few days here and there, you know, wasn't taking care of them. The house got tore up. We got evicted. Um, and so I was living in my car with my three kids going from hotel to hotel, you know, still using, locking myself in the bathroom for hours and, um, finally called my grandma, my dad's mom to help me. And where, so she, where was mom during this? If, Cause um, you moved in, you'd moved down to out to Iowa with your mom. Yeah. Right? So 
the thing about when I start using, I, I stopped talking to people. So she would try to come over there and I wouldn't answer the door. I mean, she knew what was going on. You know, she had called the police for welfare checks and things like that. So, um, she was around, but I, I shut her out of my life when I was using. So, um, my grandma came and got me. Again, I was staying in her house with my three kids tried to stop using, um, got back into school up here, started working as a, um, you know, in nursing homes again. Um, so this time my schooling went a little bit further. Um, I got, I applied to a nursing program. I think there was like, oh, 85 slots and like 400 people applied and I got in, um, because my test scores were so high and my grades were so good. Um, and, you know, the same story. I got a place, I got some help with, you know, rental assistance. I had a place, um, really good job. It was a nursing school and, you know, got a bunch of money from school and started using again. I drove up to Minneapolis and, and found, you know, the, the drug people and things like that and how I could make fast money. And this time I started leaving my kids longer and disappearing and um, that my family up here started calling child protection on me. So my kids got removed from me. Um, I got them back, I went to treatment and then I would do good for a couple months and then I would go right back. And so there was a, a time, I believe it was like 2000, 2007, 2008, where I um, left my kids and I knew that, you know, child protection was still involved. I had, you know, I was on probation for DWI and I knew I was going to go to jail and that child protection was going to come back. So I just left and I didn't come back. Um, so in, you know, my addiction got so bad that I abandoned my kids and my grandma took them 22 years from Los Angeles and had just moved to Minneapolis. And I was out there doing what I was doing and, and we met and, you know, it, it, we clicked and, you know, he was selling drugs and I was doing drugs and, and doing, you know, my stuff that I was doing. And, um, we moved, I moved in with him and his dad. I think I had a laundry basket full of stuff and he left LA with a suitcase. Um, this was in like 2009. I remember stopping just enough. I would talk to him about my kids and I, I, I called, one morning I called Rice County Child Protection and I was like, you know, I, I want to try to get back into treatment to try to get my kids back. And she said, well, your rights have been terminated. At the point you can't see them, you can't talk to them. That is, you know, they were, my grandma had gotten her foster care license. So they were fostering with her. Um, the messed up thing about it is that she fostered my sons, but she wouldn't take my daughter. So my daughter went um, with this other family that we knew um, for foster care. So at that time, my kids were two, five, and 14. And um, I knew I had a warrant for my arrest. And I said, well, if I, there's nothing I could do to get my kids back, then I have to leave here because um, I don't want to go to jail. And so Von Shane and I packed up and we went to Denver. And um, we were in Denver for about a year you know, the same stuff there. We got a place and everything. And my drug use got worse. Um, Von Shane and I were different kind of users. Um, 
I mean, he never smoked and, and I did. I was actually, I actually did some IV cocaine use as well, in addition to smoking crack and he just snorted, but he would, you know, spend what he was going to spend and then he'd be done for the day. And for me, there was never a done. Um, so we would get into fights a lot about, you know, my using and I would, you know, run away from home, be gone for a week and then come back and things like that. You know, I, I don't know if we really had a real relationship at that time. I think we were just kind of coexisting and uh, we didn't really talk a whole lot except for when we were talking about getting some more dope. Um, things got bad in Denver. Um, he had gotten to some trouble there. And so we decided we were going to move from Denver. Um, so we did. So we moved from Denver to Dallas. And I think we were in Dallas about four months. And I had done one of my runaway from home things. We were living in hotels at this time. I think we we're at a Motel 6. We didn't have a place in Dallas. And um, while I was gone, I had got arrested. And uh, I've been arrested several, several times, but it was all misdemeanor stuff and I'd get right out the next day. Um, well, this time I got arrested for possession. And in Dallas, any level of possession is a felony and they don't let you go. You have to bail out. And I didn't have anybody to bail me out um, because while I was in jail, um, Von Shane's dad overdosed and died. Um, and he went to Minnesota to bury his dad. So he was in Minnesota. I was in Dallas in jail. I didn't have anybody to call. And um, I didn't um, have any resources for bail or anything like that. Um, he was pretty much done with me because I would run off and, you know, leave him with nothing. And um, at this time, like in Denver and in Dallas, he was trying to work. So Von Shane is a really, um, really, really good chef. He was actually trained in New Orleans and worked at Wolfgang Puck's and Emeralds Legacies and everything like that. So he was working um, in Dallas and Denver off and on. Um, and, but there was times when I would take all the money and I would leave. So he was pretty much done with me, lost his dad. So I was stuck and I didn't have anybody. I remember sitting in jail and, um, I was like, well, this is it. Like I'm either going to die or I'm going to end up in prison. And I had enough time. I think I was in there for 10 or 11 days to just sit there and really detox a little bit and really get back to me. And like, I got to do something different, you know? And I remember talking to this girl in jail and she's like, um, all you have to do is, is turn to God. That's the only thing that can help you. And so I started praying and, and she, and I was like, I don't even know how to pray. She was like, just do it. And so I started praying and I asked for strength and I asked for mercy and for things to be different and to make me different and to, 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 to show me how to do something different. And also in jail, you know, because of my, um, I will say gift to talk to people, I convinced this lady in there, uh, she was a lesbian. And I was like, you know, if you, she was getting ready to get out. I was like, if you bail me out, you know, I'll make all this money and da, 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 da. You know, I didn't think anything of it. And she got out. And so I'm laying there and I'm, and, and just kind of coming to the resolve that I was going to be there until they decided, because in Dallas, you have to get, get indicted by the grand jury. So they have up to 30 days to do that. So you pretty much sit there until they decide if they're going to charge you. And so I remember laying, I was laying my head down. I was like, all right. I was like, it's on you, God. I said, there's nothing else I can do. I kid you not within like 
three minutes, they called my name and told me to pack it up. And that girl had bailed me out. <laughs> that was like, that never happened, ever. <laughs> and so I got out and, you know, I went, she picked me up and, um, you know, of course, you know, despite my prayer and hoping to do something different, I went right back to doing what I did. I mean, I had to hustle up the money to pay her back her bail money. And, you know, in that was getting high and things like that. She got high as well. And so I was, I was calling Von Shane and he was like, I'm coming back. He was like, we can sit down and we can talk, but I'm not going to promise you anything. And so this girl had dropped me off at this truck stop, like out in the middle of nowhere, which was super, super dangerous. And um, I called him from a payphone, and I was like, look, here's where I'm at. You can come get me. So he came, got me. And he was like, you know, look, I love you for whatever reason. He was like, but I cannot continue on this roller coaster with you. My dad just died. Like we have nothing. We're homeless. Um, and I was like, no, I'm with you. Like we need to do something different. Like here's cause there, there was a period of time. I don't remember when and where that I had stopped using for a few months and I had gone to meetings and got a sponsor and things like, like that, but it just, it wasn't enough. Um, 12 step meetings are great. You know, I still am involved in a fellowship, but what a lot of people don't understand is that if you don't deal with the trauma and the pain behind what drove you to use, to use, um, that a lot of times people just keep going back. Um, and so that was, was the case for me is that I was just in too great of a pain, too great of pain without having my kids and things like that, that I, um, just kept going back to use. So I remember sitting there talking to him and, um, I was like, okay, so we're going to do something different. Like I need to go to a meeting. Like I have to stop doing this. Like I can find a job and he, we were going to go for, look for jobs and everything the next day. And, um, I was like, but tomorrow. So like, like right now let's get high and then tomorrow we'll do something different. And he was like, nope, like this is it. Like we're done. Cause he wasn't high. I, I still was. And so I stopped like, that was the last day that we used. That was, um, January 20th of 2012 was the last day that I used. And so the following day is my, is our clean date. So we have the same recovery date, um, January 21st, 2012. And, and the way that things happened, um, started happening is just like things started opening up for us. So the next day we went to a meeting, you know, I got the first girl that I saw that had makeup on. I'm like, you got your shit together. Let's will you be my sponsor. And so got a sponsor and, um, he got a job at, I actually went in there to apply for a job for myself as a server. Cause I'm like, anybody could be a server. I'd never done it before, but I'm like, I could lie and say it was a server. And so we went in there to get a job for myself and he ended up getting a job at this really high end steakhouse in Dallas. Um, and so that was awesome. We were staying in a weekly motel and um, we had enough to pay for the hotel. We went and got food stamps to be able to eat. Um, so after a couple of weeks, you know, I would just stay in the room. Like I would just stay in the room. He's like, you just stay here and, you know, we'll figure it out. And then um, he would go to work and I would just stay there and I didn't use. And then a, another week passed. And so we, um, I forgot what we were doing, but for some reason we were driving around this really nice neighborhood and we, we had only our food stamps to eat. So it was like, let's go get a sandwich from the grocery store. We can sit at this park and eat lunch. And so we did. And I was like, this is really, really nice. It was called Duck Creek in Richardson, um, Texas. And so 
we were sitting there eating lunch and, and we noticed um, some little townhouses uh, right across the creek. And I was like, let's drive through there. And so mind you, we have two weeks sober, uh, clean and sober at this time. And we start driving through these townhouses and we see a for rent sign. And we're like, well, let's call it. And so we called it and the guy came, he lived right up the street and he showed us the, uh, the apartment. And it was like, you know, I got, I got, you know, my gift to Gab. And I was like, look, like we're new in town and, you know, we just started working and we don't have the whole deposit now, but we can give you half now and half in two weeks and, um, and things like that. And he, um, he let us rent the apartment. And he didn't even ask us for ID or he didn't run our credit or nothing. It was like, I was like, okay, God, like, like this is, this is a good sign. And so we got this adorable little apartment in Richardson and I walked around the neighborhood and I found um, a job a couple blocks away, waiting tables at a local restaurant and um, really started going to meetings almost every day. Um, and things were looking up and going really good. And, um, because I was on probation for that charge, um, you know, I was on the kind of probation where if you, if you meet all the requirements, um, they drop the charge. And so I was doing what I had to do. They put me in a treatment program, like through the probation office. So I was doing outpatient treatment. Um, I was working, I was going to my meetings. I was, you know, hanging out with women in recovery and things like that. And things were going really, really good. And uh, in that treatment program, that's where I started kind of learning about the correlation between trauma and addiction and really just having the opportunity to um, heal and to share about, you know, the awful things that I did in my addiction and, and the most awful being um, leaving my kids and, um, you know, actually accepting the gift of recovery. And that's a lot, the, uh, a barrier that a lot of people don't get over is that you have to believe that you deserve this new life. Um, and, and that comes from self-forgiveness. And that's really, really hard for a lot of people to do because we do do awful things in our addiction. And you know, a lot of people steal from their mothers and, and their children and, you know, the abandoning their children and really hurting people that they love and yeah, themselves. You know, that it, it's interesting you bring this up. Uh, and first of all, I just want to say, wow, you know, thank you so much for sharing that. My first question, I guess, would be, you know, is all of this you talk about it almost, it, it seems easy for you to talk about. Has it always been that way? Or has it been, has it been a buildup to where you can be so open and vulnerable and sharing your story to people? Um, yeah, I will say um, that I knew that I was healed when I could talk about things without crying. And um, it took a while to be able to do that, you know, um, that is something that has taken repeated uh, instances of me telling my story. And depending upon the audience, I, I get a little more emotional when I'm talking to people that are in recovery because I see the effect that it has on them. And when I see other people have an emotional reaction 
to my life because they've lived it as well. You know, and in the rooms, we often say, wow, she just told my story. And so knowing that I'm connecting with somebody in that way makes me a little bit more emotional. Um, I will say that, you know, as a trauma therapist and somebody who does uh, uh, EMDR therapy, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is a evidence-based modality for treating trauma. And um, I, would, I would just add, I highly recommend anybody who's experienced trauma go through that EMDR or yeah. there's a couple other modalities. I don't know a ton about the other ones, um, but yeah, for sure. And yeah. Because trauma, I think it's something I picked up on. I know I shared with you my story back last yeah. winter after our son died. Um, after It was after you had spoken. I think that might have been in like, I don't even remember. It was such a blur. He died in November. I saw you speak sometime at that networking event, um, yeah. either late winter, or early spring. And then we got together to just chat a little bit about what you do. And I think that's when I shared my story with you. But like, like our son, one of the things I'm finding is he was probably going through so much trauma from his childhood with his, yeah. his dad was a, was a drug user um, and, and could be very violent towards his mother and, and the two boys that, but what we found, you know, he was experimenting with drugs and I think it was all a way to help kind of like you talked about, you know, numb out and try to feel better in the face right. of that trauma and the drugs do that like he I think he had kind of not so much a death wish but he would do things like we live on a, on a wooded lot and he would go down the driveway that is you can't see left or right until you get all the way down there and he'd get on his skateboard and go as fast as he could down that driveway right out into the road oh wow and I think part of it is he, you know, and this is just me kind of being an armchair psychologist maybe, but I, I wonder if that didn't give him this kind of euphoric feeling as he was doing it that just oh, helped him sure. feel a little better. For sure. Um, you know, I'll say a couple of things about that. So, so from my work um, and my training at EMDR, what I do know is that when you talk about trauma, you're talking about it from your cognitive part of your brain. So as a trauma survivor, um, one of the survival skills that we have to adapt to traumatic situations is that we're able to block out the emotion part of the brain. And so that's why EMDR is so effective because the bilateral, through the use of bilateral stimulation, you get the left and the, the right or the, the thinking part and the feeling part of the brain to talk to each other. And that's part of the, the reprocessing that happens is to be able to walk through the feelings of that experience. Um, so that's another reason of being able to kind of talk about things, um, and, and not like lose it. Um, the other thing, you know, that you really brought up that was really valuable is that people with addiction issues, um, a, there's a biological component to that. So if, if you have one parent that, um, that is, uh, uh has substance use disorder, um, you, you know, I don't have the statistics right in front of me, but, you know, close to 70 to 80%, like uh, more likely of developing a substance use disorder yourself. Uh, if you had no parent uh, versus if you had no parents that had substance use disorder. Is that a biological fact? I mean, a, a, and yeah. a, I'm really curious, like I think about what if, you know, somebody was given up as adopt as an adoption and yeah, their parents, the biological parents maybe were drug addicts, but they're, so is it, is it biological or social would be kind of the question. So, so there's the nature versus nurture argument. There's actually a, there was actually a study done on twins 
a twin study who came from, uh, you know, addicted families and one grew up in the environment and one didn't. And I don't, you know, I, I can't off the top of my head, um, you know, give you the data on that, but I will say that one parent you're, you're pretty, you know, you have a higher likelihood, two parents, you're up into 90% that you could, um, develop a substance use disorder. Social and environment has a lot to do with it as well. So there's, there's a lot of components that can kind of make the perfect storm to develop an addiction. So, so being in the environment and having people that have used and develop and developing trauma is kind of like, you know, the, the nail in the coffin, like you're, this is the path that you're likely going to take. Um, you know, there, there are certain things that happen in the family system when addiction is present. You know, there's family systems, a dysfunctional family system where, you know, kids take on different roles to um, compensate for the loss of healthy attachment and development um, that should be taking place um, because one of the parents is addicted. So um, that happens. And, and the thing that you brought up about your son is that people who have, you know, addiction in adulthood or, or, or adolescence often show those traits early on. So like I could talk about, you know, when I was three or four years old and my addiction to sugar and candy mm-hmm. and having complete meltdowns because of not being able to have candy when I wanted it. And I'm actually starting to see those traits in my, my two-year-old granddaughter now as well. So it's really interesting to see, um, to see these things, you know, play out and to understand them better because of my education now and my um, treatment of others in this field, it, it, it coupled with my own individual experience. Yeah, you have so, some amazing insights. I did. I did interrupt you from your story, and I think you brought it up with with your granddaughter. I, I want to make sure that we get that out there. Where oh, are sure. you at with your 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 children had been removed yeah. from you? You went yeah. down to Dallas and started yep. rebuilding your life with Von Shane. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we, you know, after we got, uh, a couple years in recovery, we we're in a really good position. I started school. I think I had four or five months in recovery and I was like, I'm going to be a counselor. So I, I was always in the back of my mind that I wanted to help people. Um, but with nursing, because of my, um, criminal history, I knew it would be really hard for me to get licensed as a nurse. And I knew that the alcohol and drug counseling field was a little more forgiving. So, um, I started my um, education and uh, working on my associate's degree in alcohol and drug counseling. And um, I started working in a treatment center. So I got hired as a receptionist. And within a couple months, I got promoted to administrative director. Um, I, I will say that my work as a server in a restaurant really helped me with my social skills. Um, having lived in, I call it an alternative universe of, of kind of the lifestyle that I was living. I didn't know how to talk to people. Um, you know, I was intimidated by people that were educated, you know, people that I considered square that like had a job and never committed a crime in their life. (laughs) Those weren't the kind of people I was used to being around. And I always had this kind of like this little thing inside me, like if they find out who I really am, they won't want to talk to me. And so I didn't, I wasn't as open about my story and things like that, except for when I went to my meetings, then I felt like I could be myself, but, but working in the, the restaurant world where, you know, I could, I could mess up and I wouldn't lose my job, you know, and kind of learn how to talk to people and navigate. My husband still talks about that to this day of like, just kind of watching me learn how to talk to people was really entertaining for him, I bet. <laughs> um, and so 
working in this treatment center, got promoted to administrative director just at the beginning of my career. And I said, um, you know, the guy that was running it was um, not super educated. You know, he had an investor. He was in it for the money and he didn't have the passion for it. And I was like, I'm going to have my own treatment center one day. I'm like, if, if this guy can do this, I can do this. And I just need to get those letters behind my name so I can know what I'm doing once I get in a position to be able to do that. Um, so we, you know, I got, got the good job and things like that. We're getting to a place where we are um, a couple years into recovering, we're getting ready to buy a house. And we started talking to some mortgage people and things like that. And um, I said, there's no way that I, I can, can buy a house here. Like my, my kids are in Minnesota. Um, in the process of my recovery, um, I reached out several times to my grandmother who had, who had adopted my kids. So she adopted them. She took my name off their birth certificate. I was dead to them uh, and to her. Uh, as long as she was alive, she wasn't going to ever let me see my kids. So I had tried flying out there. Um, I showed up to my aunt's house who had one of my kids. She wouldn't even let me hug my son. Um, so I was completely cut out of my children's lives. And um, my daughter, who had gotten into another foster home, her and I started talking um, and things like that. And, and um, she, as soon as she turned 18, she came down to live with me. Um, so at that time, you know, I had a couple years in recovery. Von Shane and I had gotten married after a year in recovery. And um, so I had my daughter and, you know, I was like, I, I can't stay here. Like, like, I, we're doing okay. I can go to Minnesota, regardless of whoever tells me that I can see them, I can show up. You know, I knew their games. I knew what school they went to. Um, so that's what we did. We packed up and we moved here to Minnesota in 2015, um, rented a house uh, in St. Paul uh, while we were looking for a house to purchase. Um, we purchased our home uh, in, in here in Minnesota in early 2016. And that's what I did. I just started showing up to all their games. I would show up to every single game to their practices. I would, you know, buy them shoes. I'd get to hug them for two minutes. If my grandma or anybody from the family was there, they couldn't talk to me. Um, the first time they saw me at a game, uh, my aunt and my grandma actually cornered me in the bathroom. My aunt tried to assault me and told me I had no right to be there. They called the police. Um, the police, I told the police, I said, I'm not trespassing. There's no, this is a public place. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not trying to take them. I'm just here. And I told them, I said, you cannot stop me from showing up and they know that I'm here. And so that went on for, uh, uh, I think a year and a half to two years to where we, me and my sons would talk on social media. We'd meet at the mall when we could, and we'd start seeing each other. And, um, Finally, at one game, it was on Mother's Day, actually. Um, at one game, my grandma walked up to me, and she's in her 80s. I mean, she is not doing well at all. Um, she's a, a tough, bitter old woman, though. And she said, um, why won't you just stay away? I said, I said um, because they're my kids. And um, she always had to say, well, they're my kids. You're not, you know, and I'm not going to argue with her, you know, on paper, she is their mother. But, um, so I said, I am not hurting anything. I said, I'm just showing up. I don't disrupt anything. I said, you need help. At this point, my sons were having some pretty, um, pretty tough, 
behavioral issues like most teenagers. I mean, you know, smoking weed. My son got expelled out of school, a really um, prestigious Catholic high school that he had to fight to get into. He got expelled for selling pot brownies at school. So um, I was like, you need help with them. I said, and I can help you, you know, like I, I married and I own a home and like we can help. And she agreed to let them come and visit me uh, one weekend. And in the time, like they, I think it was the second time they had visited, um, my son had stole some money from her and she was like, well, they can stay there and live with you. And so they've been living with us since 2018. Um, there's still some power struggle issues. I mean, that relationship with her is always going to be a strange, I just accept her for who she is. You know, she tries to still continue to make decisions in their lives. They go to see her on the weekends and things like that. But uh, my sons are 19 and almost 16 now. And they've been with us for a couple of years um, and things are going good. I mean, they're not perfect, but um, my daughter and I have a great relationship. She's actually a counselor intern uh, going to school to be a counselor, just like me. Um, and she works here at Navon with us. Um, she's got a two-year-old that I absolutely adore. They live right around the corner from us. Um, and things are going good. I mean, we have close to 75 beds, sober living beds for our clients. And um, we have a full staff. And um, I mean, I, I couldn't have imagined when I started recovery, you know, almost nine years ago that my life would look like what it did today. Um, but th like I mentioned it, that, that first step of, you know, and I help people with this all the time in therapy is like, just because you did bad things doesn't mean you're a bad person. Like there is always going to be goodness inside of every person, even if they're a murderer or a rapist. I mean, there's, there's always good inside of everybody. Not that I condone any of those behaviors, but you know, there, there's, there's grace and mercy available to us all. And, um, our actions don't make us who we are. And at any point in time, you can change the tra trajectory of your life and become anything that you want to be if you're willing to put in the work and the time. So once I started actually, you know, living this life and seeing, you know, the things that I could do and, and that my story and my history is an asset and not something that I have to be ashamed of. Um, is, is when I realized like how powerful of a woman I, I was and that I can be and will continue to be. Because not only do I have the education, I have the personal experience. Um, so, you know, even talking with, like there's some organizations here who help people leaving the sex industry. Um, I, I've never met somebody else who has the education and licensure that I have that also has that history. Um, so I know that, you know, it's, it's, it's something valuable to have, um, you know, the addiction history, the sex trafficking history, and then to be able to come out this far on the other side of it. Um, you know, I'm just really excited to see, um, what else I can do to help people. Um, so I, I'll be done with my doctorate in about six weeks and I'm going to start working on my book. And so... Um, just trying to let people know, no matter how far down you go, there's always a way out. Yeah, I think a couple, there's so much that stands out. I've got a, a page and a half of notes that I took while you were talking. Um, it, it, I'm fascinated by it all. I, I mean, it's a tremendous just story of of that. I think, and I, I started to talk about it um, 
a few minutes ago, because one of the things that keeps showing up in episode after episode, just did the 20th, posted the 20th episode of this podcast on Monday. And I don't know how many, but I would say the vast majority of my conversations go back to the idea, and you talked about forgiving yourself, but it goes back to the self-love, self-esteem, believing that you're worthy. I say that all the time, that there's not a human being on this planet that's not worthy of love. Even the murderers and the people who have done the worst things in the world, they're still, by being on this earth, worthy of love. Um, they may have to you know, pay their pay the consequences for their behavior, but that that's different than being worthy of love, right? And I think that's where people have such a hard time. I, I'm no addiction specialist or anything, but I, I I will say I have a, you know, we we lost our one son. And then shortly after that, I've got another son who is now 21, just turned 21, October 1st, out in uh, New York at Fort Drum. And he he made an attempt on his life, or I don't think he really made the attempt. He started to and then stopped and then called for help from his first sergeant in the army. Um, and he's been battling with uh, alcoholism. His his mother is is a recovering alcoholic, we think, recovering. Um, my relationship, I, while I would never say I was an alcoholic, I was sure always, you know, real. I, I never had a problem having a beer in my hand or, you know, overdoing it occasionally. Um, mm-hmm. So he, he got, and I have alcoholism on both sides of my family. He had it then on his mom's side. So I see that kind of biological, the social component of it. Um, and he just went into treatment um, sometime, I think in September, end of August, early September, they were actually concerned about letting him leave because they were letting him leave about five days before his 21st birthday. So they were a little worried I think about you know turning him loose at at that milestone, but they ended up letting him him out of the treatment on time. Uh, he seems to be doing better. It's kind of hard to tell, you know. He's out in New York, and as young younger people will tend to do, you know, they they tend to tell us the things we want to hear. But even with him, you know, I talked to him about his recovery, and it's like you know you can go a year a mistake that people make is they go a year and they're clean and sober. And then they have that, you know, we hear it fall off the wagon. Right. And they, they, they use, or they drink. And then the next day and they make it bigger than what it was, you know, they forget about those 365 days leading up to that and that they were clean and sober. And there's only one day that they used and they can just start, stop again. Right. Right. And I, I think about that and there was something that you talked about when I saw you speak that I wanted, I think it kind of goes along with this too, is having hope for ourselves to be able, you know, and being able to forgive ourselves, we need to be able to do that with each other. And as a family member of people who struggle with addiction, you had talked about, and I think you said something to the effect of if they're still alive, there's still hope. Yes, absolutely. That's our, um, our, our motto slogan. I hate those words, but here at Navon is where there's life, there is hope. And I think that you, your story, what I think is so amazing about your story is that you, 
you, you, you were on that kind of roller coaster, right? And you, you had those traumatic experiences as a child, you were trying to find whatever way you could do to, to normalize how you felt, um, or just drown out the bad feelings and try to grasp at something that felt good, which is, uh, I heard, I, I watched a video recently, um, we'll be playing it, a, a at the homeless shelter that I work at, um, we're going to do a screening of it. It's called the invisible class and it's about homelessness, but they had a doctor on there. And this doctor talked about, um, the feeling that, that people would get when they would get high. And he talked about heroin and he asked some, one of his patients, I think, you know, what did it feel like the first time you, you used heroin? And the patient said, you know, it felt like pure love. It felt like somebody was just giving me this, this hug, and loving me. And I'm like, as I'm watching that, I, I remember I literally teared up because I'm thinking, you know, these people who are marginalized in society or who have been abused and are going through trauma, you know, the homeless, the, the addicted, the violent, even the, the gang members, it, it, a lot of it's just that search for love, right? And if you can find that in a chemical, it's no wonder that people would turn to that. And unfortunately for a lot of people, they don't have those relationships that give them love. So they're looking for the substitute. Yeah. And I think, you know, it starts out like that. And, you know, I will say that, that the substance use goes in phases. It's, you know, it starts, starts with a honeymoon, you know, romance, love, and then it turns into torture. You know, a lot of people talk about, you know, using against their will you know, waking up each day and hating yourself and not wanting to get high, but you do it anyway. Well, is it, is it that too, like that first high, is it almost like a chase then? Cause I can yeah. see what you're saying like that, yeah. you know, that first high would feel like love. And then you, yeah. you never get back to that, but you keep trying. So that's what kind of really feeds the addiction. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's important to remember, you know, a lot of society isn't versed on, you know, what drives addiction, that substance use disorder is a medical condition. Um, and that, you know, almost always guaranteed inside every person who's suffering with addiction as an injured child. Mm, I think that's, that's incredibly important to, to think about and be aware of. And it, I think you also mentioned in that, and I, I have a note to ask you about it because I think it was because of you that I stopped this idea. You know, I'm an ex-military guy. So raising my kids, I was very, you know, kind of disciplinary in my way or the highway, ran a tight ship, all those things. I don't think that, it, and, I, and I believed in this kind of notion of sink or swim and tough love, right? In the world of, of mental health and addictions, trauma, processing trauma, uh, you know, we have a, we have a 20, 22 year old son too, who is kind of struggling a bit with life, you know, figuring it out, not wanting to work. And part of me is saying, you know, well, we just need to kind of cut him off and, you know, let him feel the pain of not having what he wants. And then he'll, he'll decide that, you know, he should go work. Right. But then I'm like, man, I don't know if that's right. I don't know if tough love is the answer, I, I think you mentioned these intervention shows and how they may not be the answer. Am I right on that? That that's. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I when it comes to parenting, um, I, 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 I'm reluctant to give advice in parenting. My husband and I have these conversations all the time. 
um, because we're co-parenting my children and we come from two different schools of thought. I honor and respect that authoritarian. um, And I I think for a woman raising a man um, that sometimes uh, we can get a little overly nurturing and that sometimes that male authoritarian you know, get your crap together. We're not going to carry you for the rest of your life. It's helpful. I think it depends on the development level of the child or adult child of, of their history of, you know, like with my kids, we're coming in with, you know, their upbringing. Grandma did the best she can, you know, but the overspoiling, no accountability, no rules, no male influences, no, um, uh, requirements for respect, those guys. So I, I think that without knowing the backstory, um, you know, I think as a general rule in any relationship, whether it's parent, child, peer, marriage to lead with empathy, you know, um, and if you're leading with empathy, um, I think you're spot on as saying, hey, these are my beliefs, but kind of also being open-minded enough to question those beliefs and to be able to look at it from a human person-centered point of view of, you know, is there more to this that I'm missing? Am I being too hard and too rigid? Um, so I think, you know, having a well-balanced approach, which I think happens when my husband and I have these conversations of, you know, hey, this is how I see it. This is how you see it. Neither one of us are wrong. We're both leading with love for the children and, and neither one of us coming from a place of, you know, trying to damage them in any way. Um, um, but there's a sweet middle spot there. And um each person is different depending on, uh, you know, what they need at different life cycles. So I'm sorry, I can't answer that for oh, you. That's <laughs> all right. And and I, I'm i right there with you because I, my wife and I are much like that. You know, I'm on kind of one side of the pendulum swing where my natural tendency is to be real authoritarian and disciplinarian. And she's more, you know, and so we kind of can drive each other nuts sometimes when, when it came to parenting and that I went too far one way and she stayed too far the other way. But we've had these conversations about how I know there's an answer in the middle. We just have to learn what that answer is. So I'm with you there. But when it comes to like, like if you're a family member, uh, a parent of an, of an addict or a friend or, you know, brother or sister, a loved one is, is going through a substance abuse uh, problem because kind of a parallel to what I was just talking about with kids is this notion like on the TV show intervention, where you basically tell them, if you don't go get treatment, I am going to disown you. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes that's needed again. I can't give you a hard and fast answer for that. You know, I mean, I don't think that withdrawing love from somebody is ever helpful. Um, But you can love somebody and give them emotional support without supporting their addiction. And that's what, you know, is that is supporting an addiction? Is that when we, the other word that we'd use is maybe enabling? Yeah. Yep. So enabling. So like, I'm not going to give you any money. I'm not, you know, but if you call me and you're hurting, I'll be there for you. I'll talk to you. I don't know that I would ever suggest turning your back on on anybody, Um, you know, sitting down and feeding them. That's not enabling. Now, if I'm going to give you 20 bucks, knowing that you're going to put it in your arm or in your pipe, I mean, that that's a different story than I'm going to sit here in this space with you. I know you're hurting, but you're still a human being and I'm going to feed you because I know that you can't feed yourself right now because your addiction is in the driver's seat. I don't think that's enabling at all. Yeah, I think I think 
that's so true. I mean, that's kind of what I taught, I say too. And I, I think that there are no hard and fast answers. Everybody's going to be different, but I think that has to, what you said, you know, we have to start with that love and care and kindness for someone and find a way to do that without enabling and, and helping them feed their addiction. But at the same time, I don't know, giving them a, a spot, a safe spot that's always there for them, because that's got to be, you take, you know, especially when you consider that, that we're talking about more likely than not. And I don't know, is, is every, is every person who's an addict and maybe that's too big of a, of a word every, but is there a huge correlation between uh, people who have been addicted and people who have been through trauma? I would say yes. I would say upwards of 80-90% of people who uh, have substance use disorder have yeah. trauma history. And that's kind of what I would think too, that it's got to be huge. So we're taking, you know, you got these people that are, are are masking trauma in their life and the trauma is real and it's causing all sorts of problems in their life, you know, just from a feeling standpoint. They're just trying to, you know, it, I, I heard one time like, somebody talking about anxiety, it was like that feeling that you get when you're in a near car accident, yeah. you don't get in the accident, but you had that near miss. And for like, you know, five or 10 minutes, you're kind of coming down from that huge adrenaline rush and that surge right. of fear. And she said the, the anxiety that she was experiencing was like that unending for months. And yeah. I, I can't imagine what that's like to live with that yeah. pain. Um, I, I'm actually just finishing uh, my doctoral research um, study on, you know, the effects of PTSD on the body. Um, PTSD is, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder is what most people have with a trauma history that don't even know it. People think PTSD is like a war survivor. Um, PTSD is, you know, that hypervigilance you're talking about, that anxiety. Yeah. People say I have anxiety. A lot of times that's PTSD. Um, living in hypervigilance, you know, your, your body releases a chemical called cortisol. Cortisol is hard on your heart, your lungs, your liver. Um, it's something that happens when you get into that fight or flight mode. Um, but people that have PTSD live a lot of their life in fight or flight mode. And so it's exhausting. Um, and um, it's more common than people realize. Um, you know, for some people, it's not an event that happened. It can be, you know, a, a series of, of, you know, emotional abuse. It can be, you know, different things are traumatic for different people. And some people um, develop PTSD and some people don't. The other thing that people don't realize that happens when you go through traumatic events is that you learn something about yourself and about the world around you. So that's what part of EMDR does and, and, and trauma therapy is reprogramming those negative beliefs. So it's usually I'm unlovable. I'm not safe. I'm, I'm worthless. Um, those kind of things. And it's almost like a magnet. So once that belief is instilled, um, that we're drawn to people, places, things, experiences that reinforce that negative belief. And so part of the trauma recovery is going back and relearning that thing, um, that negative cognition and replacing it with a positive, more adaptive one. Um, and it, it's, 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 it's hard work. Um, you have to practice a lot of vulnerability. It's painful, uh, but 
it's necessary in order to get on the other side of things. There's, there's a reason I work with a lot of people and, and, and I've said this myself is that, you know, especially relationship traumas, I keep ending up with the same person with a different face. It's mm-hmm. the same, it's the same experience. It's the same, you know, words, it's the same cycle. And that's because it's, that's what attract you attract somebody who reinforces what you believe about yourself. If you're, you're not going to attract a healthy relationship, if you don't feel like you deserve it, or if you don't, if you've never been shown how to have a healthy relationship, it's hard to know what one looks like, but that somebody that models the dysfunction that you're, you've saw growing up or that you're used to experiencing that feels like home. Mm, yeah, I can totally see that. D- does, I have a question about like anxiety and um, trauma if somebody is a chronic sufferer of kind of anxiety and maybe even depression. And, and the reason I, I link, I think we link those two, you know, my wife who is right now, she's on anti-anxiety and antidepressants, you know, as she's processing and she's in the middle of EMDR right now with her therapist awesome. um, because of that, you know, and, and you're at, I, I agree. <laughs> it's kind of weird me me agreeing with someone who's about to be a doctor. I'm learning so much from you, but I, I I've learned that too. That trauma is is any we don't even know the traumatic events sometimes that are causing us to behave the way we are. Oh, for sure. And what I'm wondering is like if if somebody's experiencing a lot of anxiety, uh, and I I think to, and or depression. And I link those two together because of Martin Seligman in his book, Learned Optimism. He talked about how anxiety, that feeling of anxiety leads to this feeling of kind of helplessness and hopelessness, which then leads to depression. Um, so that that's where I kind of get that. And I know doctors often will like Waylon, when he, when, before he died, he was diagnosed with anxiety and depression. I think that that's even becoming a little bit of a catch-all for everything they don't understand sometimes. Yeah. And I think that patients are underscreened for PTSD. Yeah. So in my experience, PTSD and anxiety are sisters and PTSD and depression are cousins. So I rarely see somebody with just PTSD. There's usually, usually PTSD and GAD, which is generalized anxiety disorder. My, my daughter just got diagnosed with that. Yeah. Um, and I think she was struggling with that even before Waylon um, passed, but even after that. And for now, like what'll trigger her is seeing, because she was in St. Cloud when he died and we called her and she came rushing here. Then what I've learned is just the news of him dying was traumatic yeah. for her. Oh, for and sure. then when she pulled up and saw all of these lights on all of these emergency vehicles, now, every time she sees an emergency vehicle, she's instantly yep. back into that trauma mode, you know, and yeah. she's luckily working with someone too, to help her. And yeah. she's actually going to school. I might sometime try to get her to connect with you because she's really into, um, she's going back to school to become a clinical psychologist, I think. Awesome. Um, so going for her master's. So maybe that I could put her in touch with you sometime. Oh, for sure. But, yeah. Uh, the thing about PTSD is you can't medicate it. Um, you can medicate some of the symptoms or some, some medications that can help, uh, you know, with the anxiety level that happens and with the, sometimes people get nightmares. Um, you can't, you can't work 12 steps on, on trauma. <laughs> so a lot of people, you know, try to take back doorways and it just doesn't work. So unless you're doing a, a, a specific modality for trauma recovery. Um, there's no cheap way to heal it. It's 
it's complex and it's important work. Yeah. Do you have a few more minutes, Nicole? I do. I, I did. I did have an 11 o'clock. I told them I was running a little behind so I could do just a few more minutes. Okay. Well then maybe we'll do this another time and I'll, I'll let you go. Um, but I, I would love to have a follow-up because I want to talk. I, I went through a different modality and you may, it's very new called uh, safe and sound protocol. Have you ever okay. heard of that? I have not. And it, it basically is using tonal frequencies. And I did it because I noticed that, and I knew early on that because I found Wayland that it was, it was traumatic for me. And so I, I started seeing a therapist and then I got oh. into this mode and it's SSP safe and sound protocol. It's all about, calming your central nervous system. It kind of comes at it from a different angle. Anyways, before that I did that, I would notice whenever I talked and relived that night, I would be anxiety ridden the rest of the day. Yep. Since I've done this, this modality, the safe and sound protocol, I can now talk about it. And I might feel a little tinge of anxiety as I'm in the moment talking about it, but it doesn't linger. And so I, I I say that just as kind of a, 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 a way to emphasize just how important processing the trauma oh, is for, for us. Sure. Let um, me ask you, um, when you're doing the, the, the auditory tones, is it alternating in each ear? I don't, it doesn't sound necessarily like it is. It's a, it's a specific playlist that has been, and maybe it does and I didn't recognize yeah. it, but I know it's altering frequencies and yeah, different things like that. That's an adaptation of EMDR. So uh, it, it's, it's, pro- I, if I, it sounds like it's utilizing the same um, philosophy where it's utilizing BLS, bilateral stimulation. So, like, they, there's a lot of modalities they'll give different names. So, it sounds like what you're talking about there's ART, there's brain spotting, which are all based out of the research of EMDR, Francine Shapiro. So, it's, it's the most evidence-based and, and these offsets that are coming off of it. I love it. It's great. Um, cause it works, you yeah. know, and I think what they've done is they've taken the EMDR protocol and they've shortened it. Um, cause you know, in this fast moving day and age, people <laughs> want resolution fast. They want it yeah. now. Um, no, well, we're being traumatized quickly, probably too on a daily oh, correct. basis. <laughs> yep. Correct. So, yeah. um, yeah, so it's, it's all good stuff and it's, it's doing what it's supposed to do. It's rewiring the brain. Um, cause your, your brain actually changes. You know, we talk about ACEs scores. There's some Ted talks that people can watch about ACEs scores and childhood experiences and trauma changes the brain. It's not just, Oh, you're having, you know, this bad flashback. No, your brain structure is changed by trauma, especially childhood trauma. And so, so it, it, you know, it's it's science and it takes science to fix it. Yeah. Nicole, I'm going to let you go. I don't want you to keep your, your next appointment waiting too much longer, but I really appreciate the time. Um, And just as we're wrapping up, I want to, I always check in and see, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't or anything that you would want to um, put out there to the audience that you haven't said already? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think I touched on all the things, you know, just as, you know, people, um, I think we've all been touched by addiction in some way. Um, if a person that says they haven't, um, might want to re-examine that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so just realizing they're people and that they're suffering and hurting people. Um, that person standing on the corner with a sign, you know, is likely there because of some kind of suffering. Um, not because of laziness. So just open your eyes a little bit more. Um, see the human beings inside the people and not the issues that are presenting because um, they need that. 
you know, a lot of people need healing. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to end it. Just love people, take care of them, be kind. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jeff. This was awesome. I didn't think you'd get me talking for an hour. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. I had a great time and, and for real, I'd really love to set up a time, you know, maybe in a few months down the road to, to catch up and dive more into some of this. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Hashtag Lita podcast hosted by Jeff Connor. We hope you are now inspired to say love is the answer. Now go out and change the world. Can you tell me you want more for you and me? Give me some of the hope.